I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review, rather it's a synopsis of a film that deserves to have another inspection, with some background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half amusing story out of me. Now, fair be warned, we don't cover all aspects of plot, but we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. Today, we are kicking off our monthly theme, Not For Kids, and that's our selection of some really interesting animated films that are decidedly for more mature viewers. This week, we're getting things started off with the Ralph Bakshi animated cult classic, 1983's fantasy adventure, Fire and Ice. Join us! This week's film stands out to me as being special for a host of reasons. And one of which is the fact that it was the first import DVD I ever bought. You see, at that point, I had only ever read about this film, and I had never actually seen it for myself. And due to the fact, at least at the time, of it being semi-rare, let me backtrack. You see, places like Blockbuster and Hollywood Video had really killed and crowded out local mom-and-pop stores. Places that would have had a copy of the 1988 VHS re-release that uh, would actually come for Fire and Ice... All of those were really hard to come by in the early 2000s because both Blockbuster and Hollywood Video, in an effort to always be hip and on the bleeding edge, they would order like, you know, 50 copies of Men in Black 2, and then they would throw away classic and cult movies to make shelf space. So a lot of films, much like this one, would end up getting culled, and therefore something that, yeah, you could have been able to find it anywhere else, became very, very scarce overnight. But good news for me, as a young, dumb man with a credit card and no steady employment to help pay off his debts, I had discovered the marvelous slippery slope that was eBay, as well as the liberating concept of buying myself a region-free DVD player that allowed me to buy movies from all over the world. Thus, if I could find a film somewhere on this planet and successfully bid on it, I could play it. And before I knew it, I was importing a copy of Fire and Ice in from Australia to watch finally for myself. And truth be told, I was not at all disappointed. Now, not to brag or to boast, but this was a film that I screened in my dorm room, uh, where I hosted a small soiree, uh, providing pizza and gin. Yeah, you you heard me. For a select crowd, and uh, for good or ill, 
It was the third film that I ended up screening that night, and therefore it was not a shocker that I was holding court in front of my good friend Liz and her then new boyfriend, now air quotes old husband, Sean, good fellow, and my friend Steve, and I was shocked to discover just how cold all of a sudden my butt felt. You see, while I was talking about this film, holding court, telling them about all these techniques used to rotoscope, and successfully downing gin and tonic number six for the night, I somehow had completely missed the very real fact that I was slowly sliding down the doorframe, which had been supporting my weight the entire time while I was talking. The hard reality of the situation, as well as the floor, hit me when I suddenly realized I was resting against the cold, cold tile, instead of standing up on my two noodly legs. This apparently elicited laughs from the entire room, and I continued still to wax on about the film. Good times. Now, I was already a fan of Ralph Bakshi's work, and I had at this point seen a great portion of his filmography. So I was figuring that this was just going to be a film that, well, much like when we covered 1977's Wizards, see episode 14, it was just made to push the envelope a little. In reality, this is probably one of Bakshi's more grounded films that he's made, and that boils down to two factors. Factor 1. This is Bakshi aping some well-worn tropes that were inspired by the genius of writer Robert E. Howard. And, Factor 2, this is Bakshi working with a partner who is actually super talented and focused. Now here, I'll break this down for you. Robert E. Howard was born January 22, 1906, an American author of fabulous pulp stories and boundless imagination. A Texas native, he is the progenitor of what would come to be known as the sword and sorcery fictional subgenre, often having his work printed in the pulp magazine Weird Tales. This made him a contemporary and frequent corresponding companion of fellow authors H.P. Lovecraft, August Derleth, Clark Ashton Smith, and E. Hoffman Price. Howard is responsible for such great literary characters as Solomon Kane, Red Sonia, Call the Conqueror, and of course, one that bears the most mark on this week's film, Conan the Cimmerian or at least as popular culture has dubbed him over the last few decades, Conan the Barbarian. For the later three characters, they're all set in the fictional, often described, lost Hyborian Age, which, depending on whose version you look into, starts roughly around 10,000 years before the current era, uh, just shortly, of course, after the sinking of Atlantis. Now, I'm freely noting that I'm giving Howard a bit of short shrift here, and that is only because at some point I would like to cover him again in far greater detail. But the man wrote 26 separate works about the daring and intrepid Conan before his life ended tragically with a suicide in 1936 at the tender age of 30. But 
Howard's work circulated far beyond his own brief life, kept alive by a new generation of authors who had grown up reading him and who had wanted to expand on and continue his characters in new adventures. And while writers like Sprague de Camp, Sean A. Moore, Lynn Carter, Robert Jordan, and Steve Perry would be able to keep his tales relevant by spilling their ink, the youth of the 60s, 70s, and early 80s were often drawn to these pulpy offerings because of just one man, and our second factor, Frank Frazetta. I've mentioned him on this show before, but his name bears repeating, and his was a life that deserves celebrating. Frazetta's artwork has a way of just sticking with the viewer. It grabs you. It commands your attention. It presents a story all of its own. It's raw. It's earthy. Hard lines of action. Salacious nudity. And in almost all cases, the specter of violence is just hanging out there on display. And when violence isn't there to be found, it's replaced by a gauzy, tantalizing sensuality designed to pull the unwary eyes of passerbys. I've often wondered what would have happened if Frazetta had actually gone into advertisement rather than focusing on entertainment art for media. Just what kind of ideas would the madmen of the late 60s and 70s have been able to throw at us with his magic paintbrush guiding the way? Born February 9th, 1928 in Brooklyn, New York, Frank grew up in a rough neighborhood. He was the only boy in a family with three sisters. But from an early age, Frank was showing an aptitude for art. But here's the problem. His parents were not very observant nor caring about young Frank's inherent abilities. So initially, this behavior was only encouraged by his grandmother just to keep working on it. As Frazetta would tell it himself, when he was eight years old, his father was called into his school where the faculty all assembled to yell at him, demanding that his child be placed in an art program for gifted students. And so, Frazetta suddenly found himself attending the Brooklyn Academy of Fine Arts under the tutelage of its founder, a man named Michael Falanga. And while he would go on to claim that he actually didn't learn much from Falanga himself, it was in art school where Frank thrived. He was allowed to work on whatever he wanted, and he was learning from all his fellow students. During the four-year period that Frazetta was at that school, he ended up churning out comics, paintings, sketches, all at an incredible rate. Falanga had actually planned on going and taking Frazetta and his work across the sea and put him basically on a European tour. He would take him abroad to give him instruction, show the works, and kind of sell his art as this wonder kind that was going to be coming from America. Here's the problem. Falanga himself died suddenly of a heart attack in 1940 when Frazetta was just 12, which he would go on to say it was really a tragedy, noting it would have been a very different career for him had he been able to actually study abroad in Europe. Now, again, hindsight being what it was, never mind that little thing called World War II that cropped up. So, Frazetta found himself back in a public education in Brooklyn. But, you see, he had made some fast friends along the way with a number of teen artists, and they had dubbed themselves the Flegel Gang. 
They would all get together and collaborate on projects, pal around, play baseball when they weren't working. And it was through these friendships that Frazetta's style would continue to develop and grow. And having these relationships would help get him and other members of the gang some really early artwork gigs for various comic books that were in circulation in the mid-1940s, including Johnny Comet, Buck Rogers, Lil Abner, and then later, Frazetta would start doing ink work for EC Comics and even random one-offs for Playboys. During this period, it would be Frazetta's college, where he would hone his craft and really establish himself in the artistic world, allowing him to develop a versatility that would allow him to switch between photorealism and extreme cartoon art with relative ease. He married Eleanor Kelly in 1956, with whom he would go on to have four children, which began to influence the jobs that he would be willing to take, and also the decisions he would make with his career. After all, he had a family to provide for. After moving his young family to Rhode Island in 1960, after nine years of steady work under Al Cap, doing Lil Abner comics, Cap demanded that Franzetta move back to Boston to stay on as Cap's ghost artist, but he would only give the man now half the pay. Frazetta declined and returned to working freelance, taking gigs as they would come and struggling for the next few years just to try to, you know, keep his family maintained, but also stinging with the concept that his work was branded as being old-fashioned. It would be his work, though, with Mad Magazine, where he did a portrait of Ringo Starr. That was seen by some members of the United Artists Film Studio, and the art department liked the cut of his jib. And so he was hired to create the movie poster for the 1965 Woody Allen, Peter Sellers film, What's New Pussycat? And he quickly was put back on his feet with a single poster bringing in almost a hundred times more money than he would have made on a single comic job. And thus, for the next 10 to 15 years, movie posters would keep Frenzetta afloat working on his other projects, allowing him to, you know, do a host of movies. He painted posters for After the Fox in 66, The Fearless Vampire Killers in 67, Yours, Mine, and Ours in 68, Mad Monster Party in 1969, The Night They Raided Minsky's that same year, and, of course, I'm going to jump ahead, one of my favorite Clint Eastwood films, 1977 classic, and a future episode for sure, he did the poster for The Gauntlet. That's a cool one. Frazetta did album covers, too, like 1972's Heart Attack by the band Dust. 1973, he did Roger Miller's Waterhold Number 3. He did Nazareth's 1977 Expect No Mercy album cover. And then he pulled off a trifecta for the band Molly Hatchet putting their self-titled 1978 album out, and then he followed up by painting their 1979 Flirting with Disaster, and then 1980's Beating the Odds. The first of those three introduced what would become one of Frazetta's most iconic characters, the Death Dealer, a dark silhouetted warrior shown on a powerful horse brandishing an axe. But the real work that put him out there was when he was hired to create fantasy art for paperback books. Because that's where Frazetta's image 
of Conan became the standard. His work would be in high demand, with Frazetta providing artwork for Tarzan books, as well as for the Barsoom series, aka John Carter of Mars. If you want to know what floors me, though, even to this day, most of these famous paintings, the real big ones that have rolled out over the years, the, the ones that have been captured in the public eye, like the Egyptian Queen or the Fire Demon, they were painted in oils, and they were done over the course of a single night. See, Frazetta would load up on coffee, and he would just go to town. And he'd spend like a 12 or 15 hour period just painting. Now, over the years, Frazetta was courted by several animation studios for collaboration. But since they wouldn't give him creative control, he wisely resisted offers. That is, until the early 80s when that crazy-like-a-fox animation huckster, Ralph Bakshi, came calling. Oddly enough, Bakshi was also from Brooklyn, and he only grew up a few blocks away from Frazetta, but the two men would not meet until they had both long embarked on their professional careers. Bakshi was fresh off of his meditation on 1950s greaser culture with 1982's Hey Good Lookin'. And, ugh, man, back in the day that was a hard film to defend, but now in these woke times, sheesh, talk about wine turning into vinegar. Either way, based on my description there, he needed something that would be more commercially viable. Now, the early 1980s was seeing a resurgence of fantasy films, but of a lower fare, you know, sword and sorcery variety. And that was all brought on by the surprise box office success of John Milius's 1982 Conan the Barbarian, which was made with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that led to a host of films being churned out in that coming three to four year window. Some just happened to be along by coincidence, and some were actual knockoffs. And that list includes things like The Beastmaster, Your Hunter from the Future, Deathstalker, The Warrior and the Sorceress, and Wizards of the Lost Kingdom. Seeing that he too could tap into this genre boom, Bakshi ended up reaching out to Frazetta to ask him to collaborate with him on a project, wanting to use Frazetta's style to tell a story set in that same lost age and have some rousing adventures of, you know, good versus evil stuff. Fun. Bakshi was able to trade in on goodwill that he had gotten from previous investors in his 1980 film American Pop great movie future episode for sure because that one was successful and by hitting up these investors Bakshi was able to raise 1.2 million dollars to get fire and ice off the ground he also was able to convince 20th century fox to distribute the film based on revenues that they were still earning off of re-releases of Bakshi's 1977 film wizards damn that had some legs now, Bakshi and Frazetta embarked on their journey in putting this production together, and as was his way, Bakshi was going to employ rotoscoping to make for impressive, or at least more fluid-like movements on the screen, 
and then of course he would animate over the footage he shot. But to his credit, he finally had a large enough budget that he didn't have to employ his previous tricks of using stock footage from older films, you know, movies like Zulu and Alexander Nevsky, to fill in for action gaps. No, instead they constructed sets on sound stages out of scaffolding to take the place of walls and trees. Large cranes and trucks were brought in to act as stand-ins for monsters and dinosaurs, and stuntmen of various kinds would be filmed fighting and running to capture just the raw action. That is, before the animators would step in and add their inspired Frazetta flair to it all. On board at the time was a young, unknown background artist who was doing background paintings by the name of Thomas Kincaid. He would later go on to make some of the crappiest commercial art that your mom or your grandma bought in the 1990s. There also was a young ink worker done by James Gurney, who would create fantastic books and subsequent films and TV series. Uh, you might know it as Dinotopia today. Some of the most fun that was had by Frazetta and Bakshi was when it came time to cast for the role of Tigra. As Frazetta was known for having, oh, let's call it a sweet spot when it came to drawing the female form. So in order to get the proper Frazetta girl, Bakshi and Frazetta got to sit in on a criminal amount of auditions to select the proper, quote, body type. And, well, here, I'll just let Bakshi tell it. And we're trying to find the Tigra. Now, the only way you're going to find Tigra is if she takes her clothes off. Because the Frazetta's women have a certain look to their bodies, right? But Frank and I must have seen 2,000 exquisite women come in and take their clothes off. After a couple of weeks of that, I look at Frank and Frank and look at me. I say, hey, Frank, not bad from two guys from Brooklyn, huh? <laughs> Bring in the next one. <laughs> It was all very direct and straight, and Frank acted like a gentleman. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> Joking aside, most characters, with few exceptions, were portrayed by two different actors. You see, the bodies, rotoscope doubles doing the live-action performances were often done by stunt people. But then there was the actual voice acting being done by a completely different person. Now, for the sake of the podcast, I'm only actually going to focus on the actual voice work done, which does include some fantastic actors. Our hero, Larn, and the character of Prince Taro were both voiced by William Ostrander. Princess Tigra was voiced by Maggie Roswell of Maud Flanders fame for you Simpsons fans out there. The warrior Dark Wolf was actually portrayed and voiced by actor Steve Sandor, a B-movie favorite. And King Gerald, played by Leo Gordon, uh, was both acted and voiced by that gentleman. For the evil Queen Juliana, it was Susan Tyrell who gave her her sinister role. And as for our villain, the sorcerer Ice King, yeah, you heard me. I said Ice King. Adventure time, you're on notice. Necron was portrayed by Stephen Mendel. Now, allow me to interrupt me 
You know, for as much as I bust his chops, when it comes to Ralph Bakshi, I will say this. I wouldn't feature his films if I didn't like them. I do like them. That said, I feel he is of the generation that just sort of rolled in with the pervasive logic of, if it ain't broke, you don't fix it. And while that's a concept I can totally understand and abide by, one of his major cinematic crimes, aside from Cool World, but that's going to be a conversation for a different day, is to keep making films and reusing the name of the villains over and over again in completely different intellectual properties. So for those of you all playing at home, yes, you're right. The villain turned hero in the film Wizards that we covered was Necron 99. He was a robotic assassin who was renamed Peace after he was dismantled and then put back together for his mission to save the world. Here, we now have the main baddie being King Necron, an evil sorcerer who wishes for the world to bend to his whim, and he manifests his powers by covering all that he rules with glaciers of ice that he himself can psychically control. As a concept, yeah, that's totally cool. Yeah, okay, excuse the pun. But, but, if you're even a casual fan of Bakshi's, it makes you pause and say, Really? You couldn't have taken like an extra five minutes and come up with a new name for your villain? Really? Now, all that being said, for his part, Frazetta took a rather active role in filming these scenes. He would often stop the stuntmen and show them just exactly how he envisioned the action to play out which was quite a sight to have this small, unimposing man from Brooklyn suddenly running into a shot, showing how to, you know, swing an axe properly into someone's skull. Just wanting the professional to copy him. Now, I could tell you more, but man, you've really been good. You've sat through all of this so patiently. So how's about this? Let's cut this down to size. Let's get to that trailer. What do you say? Adventure from 20th Century Fox. 
during an unknown age, the evil queen Juliana, as portrayed by Susan Tyrell, has been manipulating her angry and sociopathic son, Necron, as played by Stephen Mendel, to use his sorcery to launch destructive glaciers and extend the borders of their territory into the Southlands. The walls of ice end up shattering the battlements of various hamlets and cities, and then armies of primitive subhumans under Necron's control quickly sweep in and slaughter any of the remaining resistance. We open on the destruction of a particular village, where a young warrior named Larn, as voiced by William Ostander, is the sole male survivor of Necron's savagery. After killing several primitives in combat, he manages to escape into the wilds of a primordial jungle. At the same time, a delegation of some eloquent yet still very menacing emissaries approach the kingdom of Firekeep, ruled by King Gerald, as played by Leo Gordon, at his castle, both requesting that the king surrender his forces and, what's more, give over his daughter Tigra, as played by Maggie Roswell, to Necron. If you peacefully surrender, my lord, Necron will cease the destruction of... This is of your message of peace? A demand for our total and unconditional surrender? We call it an offer of alliance, your majesty. I call it blackmail. My lord Necron's offer. To hell with Necron and his offer. We are free men, not slaves. King Jarl, be reasonable. My son Taro speaks more with his heart than with his head, but he speaks for all of us. There can be no alliance. We will fight you to the death. Perhaps you will soon change your mind. The delegation end up being killed when Gerald gives his answer of no, and they attempt to assassinate the ruler. Princess Tigra is abducted from her quarters by a secondary team of primitive shock troopers, murdering her tutor and her pet panther and carrying the princess off screaming into the night. Tigra ends up first manipulating and then eluding her captors by a seductive dance at the edge of a lake when they stop, only to disappear beneath the water's surface and swim off to escape. While she is being hunted by the primitives, she benefits from a random dinosaur attack which waylays her pursuers. Larn has been making his way along the swamps and finds himself attacked by a pack of wolves, which he manages to fight off with the help of a rather mysterious archer on horseback, who disappears just as quickly as he comes. Larn ends up spending the night in the swamp by the ruins of an ancient city, and it is noted that he is being watched from a distance by a large menacing eye. Larn wakes to find Tigra attempting to steal meat from his hunt at his camp, and after a tense meeting, the two end up talking and begin to bond. And we have a nice montage of them, you know, spending the next several days talking, hunting, cooking together, noting that it keeps getting colder, a sign that Necron is drawing nearer. Where are you going? I'm going home to my people. Where's home? Far away, to the south. I'm going south too. Yeah? Well, you can come along. If you behave yourself. If I behave myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! 
Larns goofing around accidentally knocks the two of them into the swampy lake at the edge of the ruins. And that's where Larn is suddenly seized and dragged under by tentacles belonging to a large, kraken-like monster. Its large eye has been the one that's been observing the couple this entire time. Larn desperately tries to fight to get free underwater, stabbing at it with his knife. In desperation, he ends up stabbing the beast in the eye with a fragment of bone that he finds on the lake floor. Roaring in pain, the creature surfaces and flings Larn across the lake, back into the jungle canopy, causing Tigra to think he has died. With no one to protect her, the princess is again caught by the primitive forces and dragged off. Larn awakens to find he is tied down to a rack, and at first he thinks he's been captured, but then he realizes that he's on a litter. He's been transported by a horse. He finds himself face to face with the mysterious archer from before, Dark Wolf, as played by Steve Sandor. You've caught me, but you'll never hand me over to Necron. You'll have to kill me first. Don't hunt for death, boy. It finds us all soon enough. But your boy was to keep you from killing yourself till you're all healed. You need rest and food. And if you're gonna kill the Ice Lord, boy, you better learn to live with pain. Ice Lord, you mean you're fighting Necron? Him and his mother. That wolf bitch, Juliana. Dark Wolf takes Larn out searching for Tigra, picking up the trail of Necron's forces and following them west. Overnight, the primitives get drunk, allowing Tigra to steal a knife and slowly attempt to cut through her bonds. Unfortunately, all she does is manage to kill the main guard that she's chained to and drag him down an embankment away from the group. Larn and Dark Wolf arrive at the camp, with Larn being ordered to search for the girl while Dark Wolf handles the remaining warriors, an act that Larn views as suicidal as there's over 50 of them. In the misty dawn, Dark Wolf begins to cut through the camp forces, but once they realize the princess is nowhere to be found, they lead Necron's forces away from the camp as a diversion. Tigra herself has been found by the witch Rolil, as played by Elizabeth Lloyd Shaw, and her giant yet simple ogre of a son, Atwa, who care for the girl, but actually intend on turning her over to Necron to curry his favor. Ralil drugs the princess and sends Atwa out to fetch Necron's men, where they will then bargain for the girl. For their efforts, though, they're murdered by Necron's forces, and Tigra is finally taken to the Ice Peak Citadel, where Necron rejects his mother's plans of marrying the princess. Frightening the queen with his rage-fueled powers and locking Tigra up in their ice dungeon. Larn has been sent by Dark Wolf to continue to search for the girl, and he encounters the burnt hut of Rolil and Atwa, and in a rather disturbing scene, the undead burnt corpse of the witch rises out of the ashes and tells him what has transpired before collapsing into dust and bone. Why do the living disturb the sleep of the dead? My father's trail. I seek a girl, Tigra. A girl? 
Lauren travels to the port city of Agatar, but he's too late to stop Necron's forces from departing. He does encounter Prince Taro and his forces, who have chartered a boat to take them to Necron's lair, both to bargain for surrender and to attempt to get Tigra back. Larn stows away on board. Taro does get to the Ice Keep, and he does attempt to negotiate with Necron, but his anger rises when Necron is dismissive of brokering for peace, demanding that all of the Firekeep treat him as their rightful overlord. Necron also goes out of his way to insult Taro, using Tigra to push the young man over the edge. We have come, Lord Necron, to negotiate between our two peoples, and the return to Firekeep of my sister Tigra, whom your warriors basely kidnapped. My father, King Jero, has empowered me In exchange for his continued sovereignty and my sister's freedom. It seems to me that my envoys made a similar offer not long since. And that it was spurned by your illustrious sire. You know full well, Necron, that offer was made before your minions kidnapped my sister. I fear, good prince, I cannot offer peace to a people who have refused to proclaim me their rightful overlord. As to your sister, well, I must admit that until this moment, the idea of mating with her filled me with loathing. Perhaps I should reconsider. Your sister, after all, is not wholly unattractive, hmm? As lesser beasts go. This causes Taro to lose his temper, and the Ice King uses his magic to force all of the Firekeep emissaries to murder each other against their will, ending the entire experience by forcing the prince to drive his own sword into his abdomen. Larn has been watching from hiding and attempts to attack Necron himself with a well-placed arrow, but the sorcerer uncannily sidesteps the shot. Deciding that he would like to have a bit of fun, Necron gives Larn a sword and duels the young man, repeatedly driving him to his knees and using his magic to knock him around. After all of that, Larn still manages to wound the king, but is stopped before he's able to deliver a finishing blow. Enjoying the experience in a perverse way, Necron has Larn thrown into the dungeons as well, just waiting for Larn to awaken so that he can, quote, do this all again. Tigra finds Larn locked up, but is unable to free him, but it doesn't really much matter. Larn manages to overpower a guard who comes to check on him, and he makes a break for the Citadel, being forced again to leave Tigra behind. As he runs away from the Ice Fortress, Necron's laughter can be heard all around him, and Larn is pummeled with snow, ice, and lightning with every step he takes away from the mountain. He reunites with Darkwolf at its base, who takes the injured young man back to Fire Keep to report what has transpired to King Gerald. 
Darkwolf and Larn attempt to convince the king to lend them the use of the dragon hawks, which are some rather cool-looking pterodactyls. And, once more, to give them a small group of warriors to make a final raid on the ice citadel before Necron's glacier could advance any further. Gerald is hesitant, but he realizes this is the only way to possibly get his daughter back and to stop the Mad Ice King. He gives the warriors what they need, but warns them if the glacier hits the river at the base of Firekeep, he will have no choice but to unleash the lava from the mountain onto the invaders. The riders are attacked by primitives with boulders and bows as they navigate through the glacial icy system of caves, allowing only a handful of warriors to safely land and begin their assault. Larn ends up exiting the cave system and crashing his mount onto the roof of the citadel, infiltrating it from above, while Darkwolf flies his arrow-filled pincushion of a dragonhawk to crash land into Necron's throne room, cutting his way through primitive guards. Larn ends up fighting his way to Tigra and infiltrates the Queen's quarters, finally embracing her again, while Darkwolf battles Necron alone, powering through the king's magic by sheer force of will, and for the first time actually frightening the icy sorcerer. He ends up wounding the king with an axe blow, and as he prepares to give the coup de grace, Necron uses the last of his dark magic to expand his glacier forward, an effort to kill all who would have opposed him. The glacier hits the river, and Gerald holds to his promise of unleashing the lava of the keep, sending hot magma coursing through the citadel, melting the walls, and killing most of Necron's forces, and Queen Juliana herself. Larn and Tigra return to the roof and fly away from the destruction on their remaining dragonhawk. They awaken in the morning, having crashed back into the very same swamp that they started in, and look up to see the horizon, and a silhouette of Darkwolf who is standing above them on horseback, having survived the encounter and smiling. Larn encounters a wounded primitive, but Tigra convinces him to show mercy, noting they need to start over. Smiling, they embrace and share a kiss before journeying back to the fire keep. Credits. Roll. Where to begin? Well, let's start with the obvious. Uh, the not-for-kids part. After all, that is our theme for this month. Or maybe I should even put it this way. Not for kids anymore? I mean, back in the day, I can understand why this would have been relegated as Kitty Fair. What do you got there? A film about some creatures, it's got a princess, it's animated? Yeah, <laughs> go ahead, put it in the family section. Or, or stick it under animation. I mean, I saw this film when I was 20, and I was ecstatic by it because it really nailed that type of genre, but I can only imagine the mind-bending qualities this would have on an impressionable, let's say, 10-year-old me. It's hyper-violent, the action is intense, and while there's no straight-up sex or nudity per se, Bakshi really broke the sensuous dial off so that it snapped at about 11. And most of the shots of Tigra in frame, actually, in fact, most of the action involving Tigra ends with her in variations of um, the mammalian lordosis behavior. Uh, just for fun, look it up when you're not at work. 
Uh, for those of you who are adverse to broadening your horizons, I can spell it out for you in the common parlance of street vernacular that is so hip with the loquacious youth of the day. <clears throat> uh, face down, ass up. Remember, that's a technical term, so you want to make sure you apply it correctly. <laughs> People say this show isn't educational. Joking aside, there's actually a lot to enjoy here, and honestly, it really does fit into both, you know, the artwork that Frazetta has produced and the stylings of a Howard story. For me, the scene that sticks out as being the best of both of those is when Larne encounters the burned corpse of the witch Roliel, which is really breathtaking in its animated beauty, as well as equally haunting with its horror as her corpse just slowly rises from the ashes of the hut floor to greet him. Now, I'm not saying these two are remotely related, but the way the corpse moves, just how it's animated, it strikes me both visually as very EC Vault of Horror, or something you'd see on Tales from the Crypt, um, you have that vibe, and then in my mind, especially the way the corpse talks, uh, it has a very similar Talking Dead motif to 1985's Return of the Living Dead, it's rather striking, so I would say if you've seen one, look at the other. You can clearly see it's it's similar. So when watched, also compared to the live-action Conan film, it's hard not to draw comparisons to the scene with the witch that our hero meets, who then tries to seduce him, then tries to kill him, and Conan gives her a fiery death for her efforts. Now, I've had people complain that this film is far too simplistic with its plot, but you have to keep a few things in mind. First, this is not high fantasy, where there's often like an overarching, you know, we have to save the world goal. You know, Lord of the Rings, there's, uh, reality is at stake. This isn't that. This is just more of a regular lower fantasy. You're just getting people trying to survive a simple conflict or solve a simpler problem that only affects them. In this one, uh, you're dealing with the running kind of Howard theme, where it's just someone battling to save their skin and possibly get vengeance on behalf of a fallen comrade. In this case, Necron is just threatening his next-door neighbor kingdom. He wants to dominate them and take them over. That's it. He's not trying to conquer the known world, and the grounds of the story set very reasonable boundaries for a certain time and place. And that's how most of Howard's Hyborian Age stories went. The conflict was often personal, and then there was often some sort of, you know, vengeance or retribution that was going to set things right. So, calling it simple, it is, but it's exactly what it was designed to be. Now, I do feel that there's something I need to sort of mention that I should have probably pointed out at the top of the episode. I really like the works of Howard, um, but much like his contemporary Lovecraft, he was a man of his time. And that time was uh, the early 20th century, with Howard being a native Texan. So he had a passing fancy with history, and he was prone to paint a lot of his characters with some very obvious, unflattering racial tones. See, for example, like Conan's people in his stories, he's a Cimmerian, and Cimmerians are based on Irish and Scottish peoples. Uh, the Picts, as Howard writes them, they're based on Native Americans, particularly the Iroquois. Uh, he writes about the Kush, and they're based on 
Nubians from North Africa. You're getting the idea. So now, I appreciate that at least source work-wise, Bakshi and Frazetta didn't focus on making any hard racial distinctions per se when it came to this Hyborian-inspired tale. But there's still a bit of a hink, much with the concept of, well, what we've been calling them this entire podcast and how they're referred to in the credits, the primitives that are under command of Necron. Now, you're supposed to be taking it in as they're part of these like Neanderthal-like people that existed in Frazetta's artwork and did exist in certain Howard stories. The problem comes with the fact that they're drawn as being dusky, uh, trying to be vaguely ape-like, and looking at them, their exaggerated features seem to trend less towards being caveman Neanderthal and more like just a grotesque caricature of anybody you could deem as being, quote, non-white. Does it make it right? No, it, it doesn't. It's a little disquieting, um, and I don't think it was the intention to be offensive, but without putting it at least in a little bit of context and stepping back, it can throw off someone who's approaching this as just being a casual viewer. So I can hear you out there right now. Hey Chris, how is this film received? Well, unfortunately, not very well. Reviews that came in were tepid at best, all of them though praising the artwork, but not really much else. Gene Siskel, the more unlikable of my two favorite punching bags, didn't mince words, noting that the film was attractive to look at, but the slow-moving and predictable story makes it very much like reading a comic book with pages made of lead. He also did mock the number of times that Tigra was captured and then rescued only to have them all happen again. Tasha Robinson of the AV Club would later opine in a retrospective that due to Bakshi's making this entire film rotoscoped, this actually remains one of his most visually consistent and thus realistic films basically throughout his entire career, but notes that it suffers from pacing issues and finds the characters to be actually bland. Janet Maslin of the New York Times was equally glib. If you love comic books but can't bear the unnecessary bother of turning pages, then Fire and Ice might be for you. It would also help if you're a sex-obsessed 12-year-old boy, but it isn't essential. Ouch. The box office reflected folks not really getting it, or perhaps deciding not to let their children see it. Opening on the weekend of August 26th, 1983, Fire and Ice was on 89 screens, and it ended up coming in 14th for that first opening weekend. By the time the film had wrapped its initial run, it had only grossed $760,000. Again, against a $1.2 million budget. For Bakshi, this was a bit of a crushing blow. It was just another project that was not critically or commercially viable, and it caused him to take an early foray into semi-retirement, focusing instead on television prospects for at least another nine-year stretch. That is, until he attempted to make a comeback in 1992 with Cool World. Frazetta just did what he always did, and he kept painting and releasing collections of his work. 
He opened several galleries to showcase his art, and he kept receiving accolades. Still, he did encounter his own share of hardships. In his early 70s, he suffered from a series of strokes that caused him to lose control of his right arm and give him basic paralysis. Rather than give up his artwork, though, Frazetta taught himself how to draw and paint than using his left hand, and he just kept going. He was showcased in Lance Laspina's 2003 documentary, Frazetta, Painting with Fire, and I can say it is definitely worth the watch. Sadly, in 2009, his wife and business partner of 53 years, Ellie, died due to complications from cancer. And the following year, Frank Frazetta himself died from a final stroke on May 10th, 2010, at the age of 82. His original artwork continues to be sought after and collected over the years by many, many famous fans, including John Millis, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Glenn Danzig, Kirk Hammett, Robert Rodriguez, and Guillermo del Toro. And again, like most of Bakshi's work, since Fire and Ice was released, it has developed a cult following over the years. And from video to Laserdisc offerings, late night cable screenings, it found a new audience throughout the 80s and 90s. Superfan director Robert Rodriguez announced after Frazetta passed that he was in talks with Ralph Bakshi to license the rights over and make a live action remake of Fire and Ice. Since that time, the rights have officially moved over to Sony Pictures, at least as it was last reported in Variety magazine, with Rodriguez still being tapped to be the director. But as of 2014, no new changes have been at all reported on that project, or even hearing about that it's progressing. And while I think it would be kind of interesting to see this come to fruition, I'm also completely fine leaving Fire and Ice an animated feature as it is. You don't want to mess with something that's already fun. The version of Fire and Ice screened here at the LSCE was the 2005 Blue Underground Limited Special Edition DVD that comes loaded with extras. Coming with two discs, the first containing the film, audio commentary from Bakshi, a making of documentary, several featurettes, a still gallery, production notes, theatrical trailers, and character cards. Disc 2 contains documentary Frazetta, Painting with Fire, interviews with Frazetta himself, his family, the Flegel Gang, Ralph Bakshi, John Milius, Glenn Danzig, plus audio commentary from director Lance Laspina. All of this can still be obtained on Amazon.com for $22.99, a price that I would argue is well worth it. Now, for those of you who only want Blu-rays, there is a Blue Underground released single version of the standard film, and that can be yours for the low price of $20.76, which again, I say bargain. Now. Remember, folks, we don't get anything here actually at the LSCE to tell people where they purchase their films from. We just feel it's important this day and age to continue to support physical media so that these fine companies who own the rights to these great films will continue to release their content. You know, and that's what we all want. At the end of the day, what you're looking for is that fun, wonderful, weird content that you need more of. What's not to love about that? 
And besides, this film itself is a gas, and I think it should be seen by more people, just for the strange and somewhat inappropriate beauty that it contains. So with all that, I say, what are you waiting for? Go out there, get yourself a copy of Fire and Ice today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like us, we would ask that you please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts. Please hit that subscribe button, recommend us to a friend, or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. I'm proud to announce that we've recently been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, Hey, Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street. Today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to like the list we're a part of to give us a boost in those rankings. The more reviews and the increased likes, that all affects those marvelous algorithms, and that makes us more searchable, and then we can share more films with more people. And you want to do that, right? Of course you do. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If writing isn't your bag and you'd like to be a little more personal, or you want to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, take care out there. Wash your hands, wear a mask, please stay healthy, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. <laughs>